0: And then I think, you know, where we had sat from the catering perspective before was saying like, okay, well, why did everybody blow their money on their venue and then not have any budget for anything else? And so they end up kind of compromising in the event because they spent too much on the venue up front suck that budget out. And then, you know, they're they're struggling to figure out how to do the rest of it. You might have, you know, young couples that are like deciding to get pizza or something like that because that's what they have the money left for. And their parents come in and say like, we've got people that we've known for, you know, 30 years coming in from all over the world, you're not serving them pizza, right? And so I think, uh, you know, we didn't quite understands how that happened. And, and I think now as we kind of sit on the venue side, I think, you know, a venue that's really great at sales probably is going to accept kind of lower quality events because of that. Or um, you start to see why an all-inclusive becomes just very easy for somebody
1: to hit the, uh, the buy button. All right, Vijay, welcome to the Venue Rx. Thank you so much for coming on today. I'm excited to chat. Excited to, uh, to chat as well and share hopefully what uh, struggles
0: we've, uh, we've uh, gone through. I don't know how much we've accomplished so far.
1: Well, I think I think you're being you're being modest, um, you know, you're you as we were talking uh, before before we got on here, you know, you're the sun is kind of setting, as you said, on on one venue as you're working on opening a new venue. And um, I, I think today's going to be a really interesting conversation around a number of different topics. But uh, before we do that, you know, I love my intro, uh, intro stories, origin stories. Give us a bit of your background, how you got into the event space to begin yeah, to. so
0: I got Shanghai into the event space. This is not a space that I ever really wanted to be in. Um, so my background was I started as a physician. Uh, didn't really like that. Uh, I went to a consulting company called McKinsey to kind of figure out what the heck was going on in the healthcare system. Uh, they put me on pharmaceuticals, which as a physician, like it's kind of a weird place to be sometimes. Um, and so I didn't really like that either. Uh, and um, so then I left and started doing some independent consulting and trying to build some tech stuff. And uh, so while I was doing that, I'd kind of bounced back and forth between projects and kind of like doing uh, other kind of internal things. Uh, my wife was building a catering company this whole time, uh, so she started uh, doing it in 2007. So her story was that she was, um, she started off in like PR and advertising, uh, didn't like kind of the office life uh, and uh, stress baked her way into pastry school in New York. And so uh, when, we, when I uh, took her up the coast and gave her the trip up to California and said, hey, we should move here. Um, she was like, okay. Um, and uh, and then she started her catering company. Uh, it kind of like started at the very beginning in New York and she moved it here. Um, and then uh, that's what she's been doing the whole time. So she's been growing it. I've been helping out with like the website and stuff like that. And then uh, during COVID, uh, things were rocky enough that she brought me in and
1: uh, been working uh, for her uh, for the last few years. Very cool. Okay. So Well, she started, you said, in 2007. I mean, that was before another substantial, uh, you know, time of upheaval in the country financially with events, you know, um, in 2008, 2009, you know, there's there's obviously quite a bit that happened. Did she, was her business young enough where it didn't really feel the impact of that? That's exactly it, right? She grew up not knowing what good
0: felt like. So that was where she found her initial customer base. And so I think that's where, from a catering perspective, we're a little bit different than most full service companies um, in that we've always hung on to kind of a delivery piece of that business. And uh, we have um, some things that, you know, tend to work um, with less chefs and less equipment and kind of things like that. And so uh, we really kind of designed a a range of things that uh, we can do uh, to fit in different circumstances. And I think a lot of that came from uh, walking into 2007, you know, people were really looking to do very different things than they had done before. And so flexibility was what happened. And so we've kind of maintained that thought on kind of flexibility in a diverse uh, portfolio of different things that we consult. to uh, people.
1: That makes a lot of sense. As you, so she's building this business, you're doing your your own thing. Pre-COVID, you were not involved at all. Is that correct?
0: Uh, Pre-COVID, I, was, I would do projects. And so uh, in my background, I think uh, where I came from was I would do say a project with a large uh, rental company and uh, we would work on all these things called like lean and uh, operational efficiency and kind of things like that, right? We would start to bring all this tech stuff into the industrial world. And then I would come home and uh, we would look at kind of the way that the business was being run and go like, oh my gosh, like why do we have no data? Why can we not tell what's going on here? Uh, Why are... Uh, You know, chefs running around uh, without kind of understanding like what their productivity levels are, kind of things like that. Um, And so uh, one thing that became a project was how do we bring all these tools from these other industries kind of into our industry, Uh, more on the catering side, uh, because we didn't have a venue uh, until COVID. Um, And so, you know, now as I'm starting to step into the venue world. so. Uh, We picked up one venue uh, out of a bankrupt company in 2021. And so we ran it um, until about this month. Um, And so now it's going to close and become, you know, take on a new life as a residential apartment building. Um, So we've kind of had one venue story kind of play out. And then meanwhile, in the last couple of years, we've uh, been renovating this beautiful um, historic church in uh, downtown Long Beach. Um, And so we've been on the more of the construction and kind of setup end of that one.
1: Is that the picture behind you or are you in the space right now?
0: Uh, no, that's the picture behind me. And so it's, uh, it's this gorgeous 23,000 square foot building. Um, it was a church built in 1913 by one of the architects that built a lot of LA's uh, iconic properties of that time. Uh, and, uh, for some reason he did a series of Christian science churches. And so that's, uh, uh, the building that I'm in. So it's, uh, you know, very kind of square, very Renaissance kind of even, um, and, uh, has a, from what I understand, one of the largest non-hotel ballrooms in downtown Long Beach.
1: Very interesting. Okay. I can't wait to get into that. I'm curious though, do you mind sharing a little bit more um, about the, uh, you know, you getting into the first venue that you were in and then the transition, like how did you go from purchasing or acquiring it from a bankrupt company to, was it selling it to a developer for the, for the build? Like, give me kind of. so, So what ended up happening was we saw that this property
0: had gone vacant. Uh, and so uh, we looked up who had, uh, what had happened with it. So it went into bankruptcy court. And uh, there was this uh, developer that had bought it um, a couple of years before, but they were maintaining the lease with the old company. And so um, what we were able to do is after they had uh, realized that it was gonna be vacant for a while, as they figured out how to do their construction, get their permitting and kind of things like that, um, we just pitched them on like, well, why don't we do a pop-up venue? You don't know what's gonna happen with it. We don't know what's gonna happen with COVID. Uh, so why don't we just try doing some events here? We'll make you some money, um, and uh, as soon as you need us to leave, we'll leave. You know, just tell us which dates you have available, and as, as soon as kind of that's over, then that's over. And so that was the deal that we had, and um, it ended up
1: going. We thought maybe for six months, and it ended up going for a year and a half. Nice. Okay, so longer, and you used that as almost an extension of the catering because you were doing food in house. I'm assuming from the catering company. Um, were you doing any of the planning side of it or any of the rentals or anything like that? Yeah. So we were, we were a full service caterer. And so what this allowed
0: us to do is instead of go off to somebody else's venue is also start to sell our own venue, right. And as an exclusive. And so this was the beginning of our, just a foray into, um, having an exclusive venue. We had already identified at this point, the, uh, the church in Long Beach. And so we were kind of in the discussions to, um, to get that one. And so, uh, that, that's kind of been,
1: uh, these two projects have kind of been where I've spent a lot of my time in the last, uh, couple of years. Got it. Got it. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. As you are transitioning from just doing catering to now catering plus venue, are there some things that you, that kind of immediate, immediately hit you in terms of maybe misconceptions that you had or surprises that maybe you've encountered? Oh, of course. So
0: I think the first thing for us is that when we came in with catering, we thought, oh, venue, like it's going to make, you know, venue plus catering, it's going to be super easy, right? Like all of all of the customers are going to be the same. Uh, And we realized, like, as a venue, you have a very different mix of customers than you do as a catering company. in terms of the people that are coming in. We also didn't realize that the type of venue and the layout of the venue and a lot of those things kind of matter a lot for the type of event. I mean, we knew it in terms of kind of going in and executing certain types of events in certain venues, and sometimes they'd be a little bit more difficult than others. Um, but we never really thought about it on the sales side where, you know, now as a customer is walking through and seeing the space, they're envisioning kind of how their event, how their, um, their event is going to go and they're going to select certain venues based on kind of like how they look or how they feel or whatever. So I think we, we knew that. Um, intellectually, we didn't really understand that from, from a sales perspective. And so it took a while to kind of figure out, like, what's the sales cadence? What are we emphasizing? How do we show that off? Um, and meanwhile, all of this was happening in COVID. Uh, and so we, um, we were unable to, um, you know, really uh, bring people in in a stable environment knowing that like everything was uh kind of going to stay that way because you'd have virus scares you'd have things from the public health department you'd have kind of like all these other kind of things coming in and so it was a very messy environment that we were trying to figure out
1: explain a little bit more about the buyer demographics and how those change from a catering company to now in the venue space because you touched on that briefly but I, i thought that was very interesting
0: Yeah. So I think uh, for us, um, you know, we're starting to kind of see that there's um, like as as people come in, they come in from different channels. And so certain channels, like certain of the directories or whatever, uh, people are looking at maybe 20 or 30 venues. They're looking to figure out what's the price point, kind of what can I get, you know, where can I go? What are my options? And so as they're kind of very early in that kind of, I would call it the upper part of the funnel kind of stage of the process, they feel very different than they would in for a catering company where they figured out a lot of those details before they reached out for catering. Um, And so everything feels very much like, you know, an unqualified lead um, from a catering perspective because these people haven't quite figured out, um, you know, what is their look, what is their vision? Uh, you know, what really is their budget? What do they prefer? How many guests do they want? Like all of those things are kind of changing as they're looking at different venues. Um, and so this felt a lot less certain for us than um, the, what we were used to kind of coming in for our, our,
1: uh, our catering uh, kind of, you know, uh, marketing and, and sales kind of funnels. Vijay, I'm super glad that you highlighted that because I think that is probably the single biggest difference between being in the venue space and being in any other category in in this industry. And I've heard vendors struggle with this. Vendors, photographers, florists, planners, et cetera, who have gotten into the venue space after successfully running a a business, one of those other businesses, um, catering. And I can relate to that as well because, you know, with the five venues that we manage, it's like you get in and I always ask the people that I'm touring, Hey, where are you at in the venue? process. Where are you at in your wedding planning process? And a lot of the time I'm getting, hey, this is our first tour. Hey, this is our third tour. They got engaged a month, maybe two weeks ago. They have no idea what's going on. You're completely educating on them on the whole process. Whereas to your point, after they've done that, then they go to the catering company that's on the list or then they go to, you know, whatever. And, and now it's like, hey, they already know their is going to cost this much. They already have a kind of a gut feel from the conversations that they've had. That's a, that's a really important point, I think. I hope, I hope people listening and watching pick up on that because that's huge.
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's so interesting. And then I think, you know, where we had sat from the catering perspective before was saying, like, okay, well, why did everybody blow their money on their venue and then not have any budget for anything else? Um, and so they end up kind of compromising, in our, in our minds, compromising the event because they spent too much on the venue up front, sucked that budget out and then you know they're they're struggling to figure out how to do the rest of it you know and so you might have you know young couples that are you know like deciding to get pizza or something like that because that's what they have the money left for uh and their parents come in and say like we've got people that we've known for you know 30 years coming in from all over the world you're not serving them pizza right and you start to see these um you know these these types of uh uh, family dynamics play out and so i think uh you know we didn't quite understand how that happened and, and i think you know, now as, as we kind of sit on the venue side, I think, uh, you know, a venue that's really great at sales um, probably is going to accept kind of lower quality events because of that. Or um, you start to see why an all-inclusive becomes just very easy for somebody to hit the, uh, the buy button.
1: Yeah, and, and from our pre-recording conversation, I'm really excited to get into that. But before we do, so tell me a little bit more about this most recent uh, transition you're doing into the new space in Long Beach. I know you described the building a little bit but what is your um your intention going into it is it going to be more all-inclusive is it going to be are you leaving the building as is or are you modifying things give me a little bit of a an unpack on that
0: yeah so uh the venue uh so we can talk a little bit about what we uh it took a while to get um the venue that we have uh in that we had to go through the zoning process that took it from a church um to uh an event venue and so As we went through that process, a couple of things that we really fought for were um, having outdoor space. And so we have about 6,000 square feet of uh, outdoor space that we can use for assembly. Uh, And um, having, um, the other thing that we did was we flattened the floor. And so it was an amphitheater setup uh, of about a 6,500 square foot room. Um, So that would hold up to 900 people um, to give just a little bit of color uh, in pews. Uh, and so what we did is we then flattened that floor and have turned it into a ballroom, uh, and so uh, that that allows it to kind of function as a catering space. Um, and so that's that's kind of our setup. And then we have kind of one smaller room downstairs that's about twenty five hundred square feet, uh, a couple of foyers that are about eight hundred to a thousand square feet each, a couple of ready rooms, uh, a production room in the back, and then we have um, we're putting in a uh, about a four thousand square foot kitchen.
1: So. You, what what drove some of those decisions in terms of in terms of style? Like, did, how did you decide? Hey, we want to do this church versus buying a barn somewhere or going in more of a rustic direction?
0: Yeah. So where it came from was we were originally just trying to figure out like what was happening in the real estate market during COVID and was there something that we could pick up that would just kind of make sense? And as we went through that, we were kind of looking at: Do we get a kitchen? Do we get a venue? We're not really quite sure. Um, we found, we just walked into the space. Uh, the first reaction was, there's no way this is possible. Um, and, uh, then we kind of went further into the discussion realized, well, it wasn't really possible, but we could figure out a way to make it work, um, with our parents help and kind of things like that. And, uh, and so we got in over our heads and, um, you know, the, uh, the thing that kind of came out as we walked in and it just took our breath away. It's it's a space that's got 30 foot ceilings. Um, it was built, you know, 110 years ago. You can feel the history. You can feel kind of the energy. You can feel a lot of things uh, as you walk in. Um, and I think, uh, you know, we just walked in, fell in love, and said, "We'll figure this out." Or, you know, as as I like to say, my wife said, "I love it. You figure." So-
1: <laughs> it sounds about right. <laughs> uh, I love it. Okay, so you're you're in this space now. You flatten the floor. Large ballroom space. Um, getting ready areas, kitchen, all ready to go. Is this where the catering company is going to be working out of for events that are also not associated with the venue? Or are you kind of closing the uh, outside catering stuff that's not going to be associated with the venue? Are you kind of closing that off?
0: Yeah, so I think uh, a lot of this stuff isn't quite certain yet. So we have our, the, the majority of our customer base is in West LA from a catering perspective. And so we'll maintain a kitchen up there. Um, what, what happens as we come down here is a, we have a space that can you know, potentially see, you know, 500 people, uh, often, uh, we're about a mile from the convention center in Long Beach. And so we expect that we'll have, uh, a fairly robust, uh, you know, offsite corporate catering business, uh, just coming off of some of the traffic from the convention center and some of the hotels around the traffic, the, the convention center, um, because it is a, it is a large kind of event, um, area in downtown Long Beach. Um, and, uh, I think the, um. The other vision that we have for it is uh, when we walked in, we realized this is one of those spaces that could be iconic. It has kind of that feel, right? It's not going to be so. So verandas uh, in Manhattan Beach we loved, but it was very much a beach house. It was, you know, a place where locals went. It wasn't something that you were going to bring people from all across town and have them say like, "Oh my gosh, we have to go to that place." It was very much a like if you're in kind of the five or ten mile catchment basin you know, you wanted a great event space by the water, like that was kind of one of the ones that would kind of come up in that mix. Um, and so this one, um, we think has the ability to be, you know, something that is visible kind of beyond LA. And so that's that's kind of where we think there's a, an opportunity potentially to go into that luxury market or, you know, something along those lines. And, and I think that's, that's where, I think to our pro and con, um, we're not setting up, more of the assembly line that would probably make it easier to sell we're, we're putting something together that would allow for a lot of creativity and customization um, because that would be how you're
1: able to access that luxury
0: kind of planner in that luxury market
1: it's really cool I love the thought process that you're putting behind this talk to me a little bit about the the process of working with the city um, zoning you, you change zones I mean um, you're in California so you know I I can imagine maybe a little bit more complex than other parts of the country. Uh, Share what that process was like. Yeah. So um,
0: I'm going to keep it pretty high level because we're still going through it. Uh, So I don't have any conclusions just yet. Um, What I can say is uh, I thought the process was going to be uh, more straightforward than it was because at the end of the day, we were taking an assembly space. uh, We were basically flattening a floor. We were putting in a wall that separated two rooms. Uh, And we weren't really doing much other than restoring this gorgeous historic building. Like the point of this venue was to restore the gorgeous historic building, not to turn it into something else. Uh, And so we thought that that would be a more straightforward process than it was. Uh, What ended up happening and what our experience was, is that as soon as you submit your applications, now now all of a sudden you have to have all this information. You need to get an architect, you need to get all the records, you um, have to define the entire building, even if you're not going to change very much. And You know, then every step of the process, especially when you're dealing with historic, you have all these uh, departments that don't talk to each other, but have their own opinions um, and will tell you that you have to do something this way. And so let me give you an example. Uh, We have a space that, um, you know, is not wide enough for gates to go in and out in the or to go to come in in the front of the building um, because uh, of where the building sits. Right. And we can't change where the building sits. It's been there for 110 years. Um, the people from the fire department want the gates to go out. Um, the people from the public, uh, works department do not want the gates to cross the sidewalk threshold. And so, uh, and then if you use sliding gates, like we've just heard, there's so many pinch points and kind of other things that you don't want to have little kids kind of go into those areas. Um, they become problematic from that perspective. And so what that meant was that we couldn't put gates in the front of the building. We had to put them on the sides where there wasn't the building. Um, and so our access points are, you know, to me, don't make any sense, but that's how you resolve the difference of opinion between public works and the health and fire department where they can't make an accommodation for something that's in there
1: for from well before the regulations. Wow. And you're re- responsible for it because, you know, you're the one who wants to change it. It's been waiting to kind of up to this point, even though they had so good because they currently have gates. Is that what I'm hearing?
0: Uh, so we had uh, we had no gates in the front. and so that was the other thing that was somewhat problematic for us is because you know, if you're in an urban in- environment in Long Beach, it's not as bad as say a downtown LA, but there still are kind of all of the urban environment issues. And so um, you know we had people that were um, in some areas hopping the fences or kind of breaking into the property, you know damaging the property, uh, the graffiti, kind of broken windows, like all of that. And so um, we wanted to put an eight foot fence um, you know in front of that to protect the building. And um you know, we got into a long fight with the historic department on eight foot versus six foot, and to me, like this is crazy um because by by zoning in our area, we could you know legally, with a small setback, put a twelve foot fence up um but they uh, they held us back on this for months, like I think it was more than six or eight, seven months that this kind of dragged on. and so I think um this is kind of where my advice to anyone kind of going through this is you know we were expecting that uh, you're dealing with a group of of people that want to try to get you through um, and you need to treat it a little bit more of there's all these departments that have their own agendas and they don't talk to each other and the city generally will not have a coordinated process, um, especially the larger ones. And so you have to take it upon yourself to be the project manager and your own ombudsman and potentially get a lawyer to help you kind of take you through the process and see you know where the feedback is legal and where they're overreaching um, to... Um, be able to ex- expedite this because the carrying cost of having a building that you're responsible for that you're paying, you know, either a lease or a mortgage on, as you're going through that, you know, while you're waiting is just incredible, and it will suck you dry.
1: I'm, I'm. I want to stay on this for a second and kind of, again, with you giving advice, maybe even to yourself at the beginning of this process. Are there people? who you would have gone gone into the process with that maybe you hired later, like if you were to do this again, who who was the team that you would assemble to start this project from the get-go?
0: Yeah, so I think a zoning lawyer and then somebody who was well-connected with the city um, in terms of like maybe a former city planner or um, somebody who just had navigated the process um, would be very helpful. We were doing it with a developer who had navigated the process before, um, but... Uh, we realized that, um, you know, for a developer, they didn't know the ins and outs of how to get things done um, quite as well as some of the folks that either had the legal kind of uh, stick to be able to to put out there and say like this is our legal opinion, um, or um, the uh, um, the planning kind of thing of they knew the people and so they could figure out how to how to actually kind of get them to think about things the right way and then um, you know sign off.
1: And is that lawyers talking to other lawyers like would that lawyer be talking to a lawyer from from the city or is it more like just having a lawyer on your team to give that legal opinion with some basis helps kind of smooth the process because people feel like there's credibility there?
0: I think that's exactly it. It's having them be able to write a letter saying like, hey, I understand that this is the opinion and the email that you sent when I look at the the relevant uh, municipal codes. Uh, this is kind of what I read. Can you please share
1: the basis of your opinion? Ah, got it. So if they have an opinion that's different than what the municipal code says, someone to provide a little bit of like heavy handed pushback on that kind of looking. Because that that would shortcut the process, right? Otherwise it's my opinion versus their opinion um, versus it's a lawyer saying, well, this is the law. Yeah, that makes so much sense. That's gold. That's because I've talked to so many venue owners on this show who have renovated an old building or have, and it's, I've always thought, gosh, it must be really difficult, really challenging to go through that process instead of just building, uh, especially when you're in a city. But that's, that, that's a lot of really good feedback. So. And yeah, so that happened for us late in the
0: process and kind of well after a six month delay. So, uh, if anybody, uh, starting a new venue kind of, uh, gets anything from that, uh, you know, arrange that stuff up front and, uh, hopefully you'll be able to avoid that delay. Still so so what does that delay cost? Uh, so for us it was six months of carrying cost and rent and it was also we lost the construction team that uh, had um we had assembled to put together for kind of that thing they all
1: disappeared to other projects and so then it took a while to get them back wow that and was that a bigger cost or was the carrying costs
0: probably uh, bigger? It's, it's everything is the carrying cost is kind of the major driver i would say i mean other than i mean we went through inflation and a few other things um so the cost of everything I think uh went up fifty percent to hundred percent in the construction space uh, at different points in time. Um, you know, lumber, everything else with the supply chain uh stuff. Um but I, I'd say the carrying cost is the thing
1: that will kill you, right? Because you're you're paying for a building that's not generating any revenue. And there's really no way to get around that, just short shortening the process. Is that it's
0: shortening the process. Because for us, at least in in um Long Beach, like you can't sell the property until you have a business license. And so Um, My other kind of major thing for somebody, at least in the California setup, would be make sure you get your business license first and then do a lot of the other things to make it perfect later.
1: I got it. Because you could sell an unfinished space, a bride or groom couple could see the vision for what you're creating and book something 24 months in advance, potentially, and maybe generate some cash. Yeah.
0: So I think the, the challenge with that, and we're seeing this with one of the other spaces that's nearby to us, is that if you do that and then you go through a construction process, you then have some of the same headaches with sold the dates kind of in the middle. Wow. And yeah. so I don't think there's a good way to do this um, because you also kind of before signing off on getting the property, you want to have some certainty that your ultimate vision is going to be something that you can do, that they're not going to oppose. And unfortunately, cities don't kind of think about things in phased plans. They, they just want all the information up front and then they'll decide. Got
1: it. Looking back then to kind of wrap this all up, would you in terms of like order of operations, it sounds like maybe you'd wait to hire the construction team, first hire the lawyer, someone connected with the city who's gone through the process first, go through some of that, get a business license, and then hire a construction team? Well, I think it's uh you'd you'd kind of need to have the construction team uh
0: available and kind of informing some of your architectural stuff. Because the the way the architect draws it and the way that they execute it are often Uh, If they aren't on the same page, you'll see significant cost overruns uh, because the architect will draw it and it's kind of like, well, it'll kind of look something like this. We had this with a ramp. Or it was like, because he drew it in a way that uh, used concrete and rebar instead of like a wood platform, it ended up being probably uh, two or three times the cost. didn't know it until they started building the trenches for the support structures and things like that, right? And so I think you really want to make sure you've got at least one of the... um, the GCs, um, in and kind of really looking at things, um, as you're going through that process and signing off on it, and even better, uh, creating estimates.
1: Got it. So having a GC, having the architect, having all of these people at the table. So when you're budgeting this in the beginning, kind of budgeting, allocating portions of the budget to these different trades so that you can have a conversation, um, that's well informed. Okay, uh, th- th- this is this is super helpful, Vijay. I'm I'm excited for people to listen and and watch this because this is going to be a, a game changer. I think for people who are looking to get in this industry but are are nervous, they don't really know what the process is. I think the process you've described is probably pretty similar to most 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 cities. Uh,
0: so my other piece of advice would be, uh, if you can, don't do this and just buy something that we are working. Um, because the other thing is the financing and a lot of the other stuff uh, works a lot better when you've got a cash flowing uh, business or asset.
1: So how would you, how would you do that?
0: Um, I would just say like, you know, if, if you can, and again, like, you know, we found this kind of hidden gem that nobody knew about that we would have no chance at, right? In, in, as, a, as a normal operating business. Um, but if you can, uh, maybe start by, uh, by buying um, an existing venue, like somebody who maybe wants to leave the business or is retiring or something like that. Uh, cause it'll give you a lot of that experience. Um, and I think as we said before, like our having that experience, even for, you know, as a pop-up venue for a couple of years, like really accelerated our learning. And so if we were to
1: go through this process and then start our learning process, like that would be an absolute disaster. All right. But you already knew some of the things related to the operation side. So you kind of came into it armed with a little bit of information. Yeah. It makes so much sense and then in terms of buying something that's currently existing that would be just because it's already zoned correctly hypothetically it already has a local reputation you already have the correct permits okay
0: yeah and so i think stepping into a venue that already had a name so uh, i think one thing we haven't covered is you know how do venues get their uh clients so i at least um from the search perspective i did a benchmark uh using this tool called ARES. and um one of the things that we found there was that the majority of how people, like the, the majority of the search traffic, at least this tool kind of modeled, uh, came from the use of the venue's name. And so the venues that were the most popular tended to have the highest uh, number of backlinks that were high quality. A lot of those were submissions of like high quality events. Um, and almost all of the PR for a venue tends to um, have that venue's name. Um, and so what you'll see is large search volumes for that venue's name and much less than, say, like, a, you know, what's a venue near me or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, I think name recognition
1: is, seems like it's the key to the game in, um, in the venue space. Thinking forward, how are you planning on getting that name recognition?
0: Yeah, so um, I think, uh, you know, I'm an online advertising person uh, and so I originally thought like, you know, long tail keyword search might be our starting point and I'm realizing like that's probably not the way to go. That's what the data kind of told me. Um, So we'll do a little bit of that, but probably not as much the focus. I think for us, a lot of it uh, is doing the in-person stuff, bringing in planners, uh, bringing in uh, people having open houses, um, you know, just filling the space with people, uh, especially locals, uh, so that they can start to talk about it and people from, you know, the different segments that we're trying to attract.
1: That's so powerful. I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned it. I think across the venues that I've, uh, managed been involved with, heard about kind of the, more of the details of the feedback of the local community saying, wow, I didn't even know this was here, or wow, I didn't even know this was a venue, are I think the biggest detriment to to people really accelerating their businesses. If they could get more of the local community in and talking about it, whether in person or online, that's a key to success.
0: I'd agree with that. And I think that's where kind of the more mass market you are, probably the easier that is, because you could do tours and people kind of are good fits and kind of like all of that. I think as you start to go up into the premium luxury uh, segments, a little bit harder because now you need to bring in people that are uh, going to be a little bit more targeted um, if you want to have a high kind of return on the effort uh, early on. And so I think, you know,
1: how to get that targeting is is something that we're actively working on. And then even in that luxury space, a lot of it is more referrals from event partners. Mm Or partners like someone, if you're in the luxury space, it's going to be a uh, relative of someone whose family works at a firm and the firm is going to use like a DMC or something. So it's going to be one of those things where it's like, we highly recommend this one. They're well put together, looking for some of those things that that targeted demographic is is looking for.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the challenge, I think, in, in that part of the market is a lot of the uh, incentives kind of take you to hotels. Um so I think uh, as an independent, it's figuring out like what are the the non hotel kind of strong points that you have, and um, being able to uh, kind of put yourself in that.
1: So let's talk about this, but um, what, what you shared a little bit before the creative versus convenient quadrant, and I'd love to dive into that kind of your hypothesis around that. The way that you explained it to me pre pre show was wonderful. And so could you share a little bit about that and let's let's kind of dive into that conversation? Yeah. So I think this is something I'm testing. So in my mind,
0: uh I had one of my um one of my new sales hires ask me uh, after we went on a venue visit, well, so how does this kind of space work? Um and kind of why is the venue owner that we were talking to really pushing towards having like a more set package uh for catering and things like that? And uh, you know, when you have this kind of beautiful space. And so uh, I was trying to put that together. So I came, I'm a former consultant. So I came out with the two by two because of course we have to, uh, can't help ourselves. And so I, I put creative against convenience uh, is kind of where I ended up because I was trying to figure out like, how does the blank canvas and the all-inclusive uh, make sense? Especially when a lot of the blank canvases are warehouses. And so those don't look the same as the high-end venues. And so I ended up with a two by two, uh, it's creative against convenient. And so at the low end of both is what I call a constrained canvas. Um, And so this tends to be a lot of government property, some of which are really great, right? But they just have a lot of rules. They have a lot of restrictions. They might not have good loading access or uh, spaces. Uh, The people that are selling them tend to be a little bit less interested because it's not their skin in the game. It tends to be like some some, some subsidiary of some department somewhere. And so they kind of look at it as a little bit more painful to, to deal with. Um, and then in some places they've kind of, you know, uh, actually put together a department to kind of set it up, but then, you know, they've got a lot of city rules and regulations and other things that they, they need to kind of stay within county county or things like that. So I call that a Marvel constraint canvas, something that actually has some really nice potential, but tends to be pretty cheap, um, and attra- attract, uh, an audience that's willing to put up with a lot of, uh, headaches. Yeah. Things like maybe a 90 day booking window or something, um, there's, um, a, um, I think on the the more convenient end, um, so on the high end of convenience, but still fairly low, creative is the all-inclusive. And so what we've tended to see there is that they attract a fairly narrow band of people because they've operationalized the process so efficiently uh, that uh, they want to uh, more or less, you know, you can have any car as long as it's black. Kind of that that mentality. And so you'll see these weddings that look almost, always, almost exactly the same because they use the same vendors. They use the same uh, displays. They use the same tables. They use the same they have the same menus, right? Like, and so it's plug your, you know, wedding into this, uh, you know, onto these rails here. Um, you know, uh, we talked with one of the the larger kind of companies in the space that does this really well, and you know, they refer to themselves as the target of, you know, uh, wedding things. Yeah. Um, you know, and so you know, I think I think that 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 model and that that kind of definition makes sense for them. Um, and then I think as you add creativity, so if you're on kind of the creative side, um, but less convenient, you've got this blank canvas. So you've got this open space with nothing there. Um, And, you know, a lot of times when you have these warehouses or other things, they're not really built to be event venues. Um, And so, how do you load, you know, where do you cook from, uh, how much equipment do you need to bring in? Like, all of these things end up being a a fairly big hassle sometimes. Um, And so that's where you see people sometimes default to like, say, food trucks or something like that because they don't have to deal with all of the the details of moving parts. Which I think you rent a venue and then you have a timeline and then you bring everybody into the parking lot to win for hours for food, like doesn't make sense to me, but I'm a caterer. So that would be, that would be my viewpoint on it. Um, I know everybody else has their own. Um, and then, um, on the, uh, the last end of the high convenient, high creative is what I call a creative canvas. And I haven't heard too many people talk about that, where you've got these higher end properties that are very attractive. Uh, they have a lot of the infrastructure, um, kind of put in almost like Lego pieces, but they allow for you know planners to come in. They allow for uh, different types of vendors to come in. They they might be um, more accepting of like ethnic, uh, uh, like some of the ethnic weddings or things like that, where you've got the Indians that have very different kind of needs or Jewish people that have very different needs and kosher catering and kind of things like that. Um, and so in my mind, that's more of a creative canvas where they help you kind of solve some of those things rather than just say, hey, you know, totally on your own, like you figure it out. We've never, you know, we'll act like we've never done one of these.
1: I'm curious where, so not in, in this point, not talking about the client, not talking about the client experience at all, strictly speaking from a venue owner perspective, what's the easiest to do?
0: Uh, I think the easiest to do is probably the blank canvas at the beginning. And that's why I think you see a lot of people start there. Yeah.
1: Um, and then- Oh, I'm curious about then on just layer on top of that and then extrapolate a little bit. So easiest, which do you think is the most profitable or where you're going to get the most business? Which are it maybe
0: depends on, I think, where your revenue streams come from. And so I think if you're a pure play venue owner and all you do is take a venue fee, uh, you're probably going to not mind if you have smaller events that don't add so much wear and tear and kind of create so much uh, parking and kind of other issues. Um, and so I think that's actually not a bad model if you're just looking at it as a real estate play. Uh, I think what tends to happen is people look at all the money going into the events for different other service lines, whether they be floral or catering or rentals or something like that. And they say, huh, I should, you know, expand into one of those things. Uh, and so that's, I think, where you get that uh, that question of do you become an all inclusive and try to you know lock it all down and take all that revenue for yourself and kind of control it? Um, and have a very easy sale, which is, I think, kind of the the model for all inclusive. Um, but you know, realize that it's going to be feel a little bit more retail, a little bit more mass market. You know, or do you want to do something that's a little bit more complicated, uh, which is kind of the high end kind of creative uh, model, where you then have to figure out, okay, well, we've got these things, but people are going to want to swap them out, and uh, you know, we've got um, you know higher end food and beverage, and so that's kind of where you see people generally get like an alcohol license and get a bar and kind of things like that. Um, Because uh, those can sometimes be, uh, help you, um, especially for the larger venues, kind of get uh, better margins across the whole thing. Because now you're looking at uh, not just the rental for the property, but you're also looking at, um, you know, selling events, you know, with, you know, a full
1: service set of, uh, of things. Profit margins on each category, 100%. What what questions would you ask yourself to determine that if if making money is the goal? Because um, I think we have a lot of guests on the show who maybe own family businesses, maybe they do on a ranch, maybe it's a rustic property, something like that. We also have inner city type venues that would listen, and you know it's a building, it's a warehouse, just like you're saying. Um, what what are some of the questions that you would ask yourself to determine? Hey, I do want to go a little bit more mass market. Or I do want to be more of that target model where it's just a plug and play here, sign a $35,000 check and it's all done. Like, what are some of those questions that you would ask yourself to determine the direction to start mapping towards?
0: Yeah. So I think a lot of it, a lot of this like
1: goes to purpose. Like what is the purpose of your company
0: and what assets are you working with? Um, I think you have to, you know, be realistic about what you have uh, because customers, especially, uh, you know, walking through the venue or whatever, are going to have a certain expectation and a framing for you. Um, that you have to then um, map up to. And so if you're going to be a higher end venue, then you need to make sure all of your things look higher end. If you're going to be a mass market venue, then you need to make sure all your processes are efficient. Uh, You know, like there's certain things that kind of come with that. And I think a lot of that ties better to personality than it does to a financial plan. Because if your personality isn't right for it, your financial plan won't happen. Uh, You know, in in my case, uh, we tried running a restaurant and my wife hated it. Um, just the day-to-day repetition of it, like wasn't something that her creative mind could wrap itself around. Like she felt like she was back in the office job that she got rid of a long time ago. Uh, and so for her, um, the creative canvas is kind of the way to go just because, you know, she wants something different every day. And, you know, that allows her to to have that level of creativity with interesting things coming in all the time. And that, that looks kind of very different than somebody who just says, you know, I want to be an owner operator that's, uh, you know, uh, working remotely from Europe or something like that and has a GM that takes care of this stuff and, uh, you know, that GM then needs to be able to wrap their heads around something that's a little bit more simple and a little bit
1: less work general. Vijay, I think you've touched on something that is extremely important for venue owners to think about and I don't think that enough people think about it. I don't think enough people start there. I think maybe they think about it once they've gotten into it but initially it's either kind of love and passion for the industry or money like, hey, this is a great, you know, there's so much money that goes to weddings, let's do this and tacked on a real estate play. It seems like maybe there's some longevity there with the type of investment it would be. And then you really get into it. But I think without analyzing yourself first and to your point, like that corporate job that your wife left, that restaurant version of the new thing felt started feeling a lot like the parts that she didn't like about the corporate job. And so, for venue owners, that could be very easy. Like, hey, let's just, you know, we're in the city. We're going to move out. We're going to buy a ranch and we're going to do this. Well, how much of your actual personality, you know, who you are, are you considering when you do that? Because you very well could end up, it'll look different, but it'll be very similar. And you'll end up three, five years down the line, spending a ton of money, hating it, and maybe not being able to shift and pivot as quickly because you're working for yourself. You're in it. Where it's like, are you looking for a job? Are you looking for a creative
0: project? Are you looking for, you know, a financial return? Like these are different elements I think you should kind of think about as you set up, well, what are going to be the requirements upon you, uh, as, um, you, uh, develop out your process and, and the more you want to not be a part of, uh, the events that are in the venue, probably the less uh, creative you want it to be, because that's where a lot of the, um, like the. Uh,
1: higher level of management kind of needing to be pulled in kind of. I want to push back on that just a little bit. Do you think though that the creative, like, like, where do you think the market is right now? Do you think they want creative? And so would you actually be helping yourself by adding as much creativity as you could?
0: Uh, I actually think, I mean, just based on our, the lead streams that we've gotten, I think there's different channels. And so I think if you're looking at like the directories so or you're looking at a lot of online, Um, Until you get a reputation, I think mm, the vast majority of the market, so the mass market, so 80% of the market, you know, wants something that's simple. They want to know how much it costs. They know weddings are expensive. Um, They want to know exactly kind of what they're getting into, and they don't want to think about it that much. You know, maybe they'd like to, maybe they like the Pinterest board, maybe they like the social media, but when they start to get into it, like, do they really want to hire a full service planner? Do they really want to? um kind of assemble their own vendors like there's a lot of people that just are like let's get married and you know put that thinking into our honeymoon um you know and then I think there's a lot of other people that then say like hey this is you know one of the most important events of our lives uh if they have the kind of young person's perspective it's that you know we're getting married and it's kind of the kickoff to our life if they have you know someone uh, a little bit older's perspective it's usually like the oh it's going to be one of these great chances to see our families and friends uh, reconnect with people we haven't seen forever. Um, this is going to be the group of people that we'll be kind of connected with for the next 20, 25 years. And so, you know, let's make sure that we uh, say hi to them all and then uh, it's easier to visit. Um, so I think, um, you know, if you realize like that's what you want and, you know, oh, they're, you know, it's the same for parents, you know, they haven't seen all these people in forever. And so like, it's a good excuse for them to kind of bring them out. Like then, then you start to see something where you want to tell the family story. You want to tell your own story. You want to make sure you treat your guests in a way that they remember from something else. Like, and, and I think that's kind of where some of these more kind of creative, um, endeavors go. And then, you know, I mean, I hear at the very, very high end of the market, some of these things are just flexes. So
1: like, you know, they do these things because they can. Yeah. Let's just spend dollars because, you know, we're going to do all this ice sculptures and mapping and all everything. Um, that I, this is so good. This is so good because I think that venue owners oftentimes aren't considering mass market versus, you know, that, that 80, 20. And if you're building something and in your local area, you're counting on the 20% of that market to be creative. And there are 12 other creative venues in the area. So you're all kind of competing for that same 20 bit, 20% where there is a mass market play, even though it doesn't maybe map to your what your vision was, you almost have to follow the numbers. And if your goal is to make money instead of give yourself a job and be inside the process, you almost might need to flex to say, hey, there's a mass market opportunity here that's currently not being served by the demographic of businesses. So you've highlighted something that's really, really a key consideration for venue owners. They not only kick off the process, but even consider revamping or changing their business to accommodate changing, you know, environment?
0: Well, I think that's really important, right? Like, especially if you're in the wedding business and and wedding only, because I think if you're a little bit more diverse in, in, in the type of events that you can handle, like it may be a little bit different. Um, so the other thing I think I've tended to see is a lot of the all-inclusive venues, um, you know, work with a certain type of corporate meeting um, that also tends to be pretty set. Uh, and a lot of the creative, uh, venues tend to work with a, more of a type of an experiential kind of event that I think tends to happen in larger cities, but probably doesn't in an urban or kind of maybe suburban environments as much. Um, so I think, um, you, you do really need to know your market and see where the, the holes are in the market.
1: Vijay, can you dive into that just a little bit more? Help, help, uh, just unpack that. Cause you, you, I mean, that was, there was a lot in those that. Those two sentences that you just said.
0: We're in LA, um, and so if you're in LA, and um, you know you're a high-end venue, like you wouldn't expect to just do weddings on the weekends. Um, you know you're going to expect to be part of filming. You're going to expect to be part of, um, you know, some of these big corporate activations, some of these influencer events, some of these uh, product launch rollouts, uh, a lot of those types of things. Um, and so, you know, I think your space needs to reflect. Um, you know, not just kind of what you're going to be for a wedding, but potentially, you know, what you're going to be for the other days. And I think if you're in more of a destination kind of rural area, you're probably not going to get as many of those opportunities. Or if you do, you probably really need to seek them out. And that might be more like corporate offsites or things like that. Um, and so again, like where you are in the market or wh- where what happens in your local market and then kind of what you need to draw into your local market to make something happen versus it's kind of a default, I think
1: matters a lot. Do You think corporate offsite is corporate offsite business is a pipe dream for rural venues or more rural venues?
0: Um, I think it's a pretty good one for established conference centers right now. Um, Like I've seen a couple of events there um, personally just kind of going because, you know, more remote companies will just tend to kind of plop things there. Um, you know where we are in this kind of scheme of work from home, and everyone's remote. To now it's hybrid. To sometimes you know some people have offices and some don't. Like I have no idea. Yeah. I think that that's all going to be played out. Because if you look at it from the offsite market, it doesn't seem as crazy as it did. If you look at it from the corporate occupancy market, like everyone's saying that corporate real estate and office buildings are still pretty empty. Uh, so I think there's there's a lot of really
1: strange things happening. But we'll just have to see how it plays out. I like how you said event center. So are you talking about like um, something like a church camp that's in, you know, Tahoe? Is that what you're talking about? Exactly. Like I went to Canuga in uh, Asheville,
0: right? And so, you know, it was set up as a church camp. You've got this like set of, you know, like uh, this uh, set up kind of down by the lake. And, uh, you know, they had 150, uh, you know, people that were
1: out there for for that event. Got it. Cabins, mess hall, the whole thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Well, VJ, I want to wrap here by asking a question that I ask every venue owner. I know it's, it is your in-between venues, but we're still going to ask it. Your favorite part and your least favorite part about owning a venue. And I'm really curious with your answer specifically because you are, like you said, to bring it around to the, the beginning, you got shanghai into this. You're coming at it from a consulting mind, Right. Um, and, and the background, I can, I can sense the background from Mackenzie playing in and I can understand, I can see how you're like analyzing this industry in a very different way than I've heard before, which I, I love. So given that, what are your favorite things about, you know, venue ownership so far? And then your, your least favorite things.
0: Yeah. So I'll tell you a story of my favorite thing. Uh, we had uh, a bride hop up to us, um, you know, uh, at dinner. Uh, just somebody just hopped up and more or less said ah yeah then gave us a big hug right and um it was somebody who had gotten married kind of in our venue and had just come back from their their honeymoon um and uh you know like like i said the the venue that we're sunsetting you know was more of a local venue and so we were just out to dinner and uh you know she was so excited and so seeing how she was still so excited like after her um you know, after her uh, uh, honeymoon and after kind of the wedding had happened and she was just glowing and kind of this is a couple I had met on their tour, um, you know, at the very beginning. So I got to see kind of like, they were kind of excited, a little hesitant, kind of, you know, at the very beginning, still trying to figure everything out. And then to see that like after the fact, it was everything that they had ever hoped for and that they were really still, uh, you know, thrilled about the whole experience and just super happy with how everything went. Like, you know, emotionally, like there's something amazing about that. So I think that's probably my favorite part about it. Um, I'll give you maybe an in-between, uh, which is, uh, from like more of a consulting and kind of tech person's perspective. I think a lot of the tools in the industry seem like they're a little bit behind. And so I think there's kind of like the, um, there's an opportunity and there's a problem, right. And that I think a lot of the people in the industry don't know how to run, uh, things efficiently. I think a lot of like how the processes are are still kind of a little strange. I am shocked that there's no dynamic pricing, uh, you know, in this space. Um and so that's something I'm going to experiment a little bit with to see you know why why wouldn't you sell uh venue off dates the same way a hotel does. It just kind of doesn't really make sense to me why the prices are so like PDF PowerPoint kind of driven. Um so I'm probably going to learn something on that kind of rather than uh, figure something out but we'll see. Um and uh you know I think uh in terms of what's the the downside to the industry I think um you know you've got A business that's very people intensive. And so I think every business that's very people intensive means that um, the challenges that you have oftentimes come from, you know, the different kind of people that you have, the different needs on the people, kind of like the requirements, like the need to work Saturday nights, like, you know, a lot of those kinds of things. And so, you know, I think in this world where um, a lot of people don't necessarily maybe want to work that way. Like it's been harder to find kind of the right people that are really excited about this kind of
1: stuff. Yeah, that's that's awesome. That's that's all of those things So very true. Um, good stuff. Well, Vijay, thank you. I appreciate you coming on the show today and just unpacking this your own uh, venue ownership journey as well as some of these other topics. I love the the creative um, versus convenient model and how you kind of like two by two it out. That's, that's huge. Um, uh, and, and I think that's going to really give a lot of inspiration for people as they're listening, considering building a venue, buying a venue, um, or even just a, an existing venue owner that kind of can now look at it with a new lens. So, I uh, really appreciate you, you coming on the show. I appreciate your having me. Thank you so much. That's been yeah, real, real quick, before we jump off, where can you shout out the catering company that you and your wife own? And do you have a name for the new venue yet?
0: Uh, Sure, yeah. So if you want to look us up, uh, both are on Instagram. We're at Catering for the catering company and we're at 440 Elm, so 440 Elm for
1: the venue. And you'll get to see all our renovation pictures. Very cool. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to track with you. And uh, again, thanks for being on the show. Thank you.